When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, Generation Anthropocene listeners. Michael Osborne here. Before we get to today's episode, I have a very brief announcement. We now have a Patreon account where you can support the show. It's at patreon.com slash genanthro. That's G-E-N-A-N-T-H-R-O. So if you believe in what we're doing on Generation Anthropocene and you want some swag or you want to give some money to the show, awesome. And if you don't want to give some money to the show, that's fine too. Anyway, it's out there and available, patreon.com slash genanthro. Okay, let's get to it. 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 Million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans. 20,000. Agricultural. 250. Industrial revolution. Six Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene. I'm Michael Osborne. Today's episode is being released on Earth Day 2022. And as it turns out, this is the 10-year anniversary since Generation Anthropocene first launched. Uh, If you can't tell, I'm excited about that. You know, this show has been a real journey. And when we first came up with the idea, what we wanted to do was to have an intergenerational conversation about global environmental change and answer this big question, what does it mean to be growing up in a new geologic age? Today's episode of Generation Anthropocene honors that legacy. So at this point, let me bring in Sophie Borston, who's actually conducting today's interview. Hi, Sophie. Hi, Michael. How are you? (laughs) I'm very good. Where are you right now? Right now, I'm at Hamilton College in Clinton, New York. What is the conversation we're about to hear? Who's it with? So today, we are interviewing Bill McKibben. You say we. You're the one who did it. Today, I'm interviewing Bill McKibben. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I was there, but I didn't actually. Yeah. Um, And why did you want to talk to Bill McKibben? Um, Bill McKibben is a very prominent environmentalist, journalist, author, and climate activist, um, the founder of 350.org and Third Act. I think, I I suspect a lot of our listeners know who he is, although we shouldn't assume that. Maybe not everybody. You know, when did you first learn about Bill McKibben? How did How did his presence on planet Earth come to your awareness? (laughs) Um, So I think I first learned about Bill McKibben my freshman year of college, so four years ago. I took a class called Environmental Ethics in the philosophy department, which was one of my favorite classes I've taken at Hamilton. Wait, what was the name of that class? I missed it. Environmental Ethics. Okay. Um, And we read an excerpt of The End of Nature, and we talked about Bill McKibben's activism and his ideas. So that's when I first heard about him. Can you say just a little bit more about End of Nature? I think that our listeners may have heard of that book, but they don't necessarily understand, you know, the thrust of it. What What is that book all about? I mean, the title itself is provocative. 
It is. An End of Nature was published in the late 80s. It was the first book written for a public audience about climate change. And in the book, um, McKibben is arguing that nature is ending as independent of man, as independent of humankind. Mm. Um, and he is arguing for a full kind of intellectual, physical, and philosophical shift away from our dependence on fossil fuels. And it's kind of the first call to action to a public audience. Um, and I believe that it really shifted the way um, that people think about the climate crisis even still today. Yeah, that's heady. That's big. I mean, in late yeah. 80s, that is really the very beginning of when climate change was coming into public consciousness. Yes. Was there another reason you wanted to interview Bill McKibben? Yeah. Um, well, since he's been involved in the climate movements for so long, I was really interested to kind of hear where he thinks we should go now as a 22-year-old who's graduating from college in a month. <laughs> um, I'm really interested in pursuing a career in kind of the environmental and climate change field. Yeah. Um, so I just wanted to hear kind of what he had to say about all of that. Excellent. Okay. Uh, well, let's get to the conversation now. All right. This is Bill McKibben. I'm a writer and an environmentalist, the founder of 350.org, which was the first global grassroots climate campaign, and now of Third Act, which organizes people over the age of 60 for action on climate and democracy. Great. Okay. Hi, Bill. It's nice to meet you, first of all. <laughs> it's very, very good to meet you. It certainly is. And uh, nice to be in touch. To get into things, I'm curious to know when global warming or climate change became a thing for you, or if you remember when you first heard one of those terms. Yes. I was a young reporter at The New Yorker magazine. My first job out of college was writing the talk of the town for The New Yorker. And so I was mostly writing about urban issues and so on and so forth, spending a lot of time covering things like homelessness living on the streets in New York as a homeless person in order to write about it, running the homeless shelter at my church. So I was very focused actually on urban issues. But in my 20s, I also was spending a lot of time out in the woods. And I started reading some of the remarkable writers of the kind of tradition, uh, Wendell Berry, Ed Abbey. And I also did a long piece for The New Yorker about where everything in my apartment came from, the water, the electricity. I went to Brazil to look at the oil wells where Con Ed was getting oil and down in the Grand Canyon at uranium mines and so on. By the time I was done with that, I had a much stronger sense of the world as a very physical place. You know, I'm a good child of the suburbs, so the suburbs are kind of designed to hide the workings of the actual world. And now I, I think I was sensitive to how fragile, in a way, our arrangements were. So when I began reading the early science around climate change in the late 1980s, I think it hit harder for me than it otherwise would have. And when Jim Hansen testified before Congress in 1988, it opened my eyes as so many others. And within a year, I'd published The End of Nature, which was the first book about all of this for a non-scientific audience. Yeah. Um, so when you said, so you're living in the city working for The New Yorker, was it your choice to write this piece about where everything came from? Or Yes. The New Yorker in those days was a remarkable place. I just mentioned it to Mr. Sean, the great editor of The New Yorker in that era, uh, probably 
told him two sentences worth, and he sent me off to go to work for a year. And in those days, the New Yorker had plenty of money. So, you know, they didn't mind if you were traipsing off to Brazil or the Arctic or wherever in the course of a piece. And that's just what I did. And when you said you were in the woods, so you're in New York, were you in the Adirondack region? I discovered the Adirondacks. In fact, that's where I went to write that piece. I spent six weeks at a writer's colony in Blue Mountain Lake in the Adirondacks. Uh, A year or so later, a big conglomerate took over the New Yorker and fired Mr. Sean. I decided to quit in protest. I moved up to the Adirondacks and out into the woods. So I'd gone from the middle of Manhattan to the middle of the largest wilderness in the American East overnight. And that really was one of the reasons that the end of nature was so weighted for me. You know, I was falling in love with the wilderness and spending all my time outdoors in the woods and streams and things. And so the idea that it was less wild than I wanted it to be (laughs) was very powerful. Can you just talk about that a little bit more, I guess, how that felt in the moment? You know, Thoreau once wrote that he could walk half an hour from his house and come to a place where no man stood from one year's end to another. And there, consequently, politics are not, for politics are but the cigar smoke of a man. A great line. I could walk five minutes from my house in the Adirondacks and come to places where I'm not sure anybody but me had ever stood before. If we were changing the temperature of those places, and hence their flora and fauna, they really weren't wild in quite that way. They reflected our habits and appetites and economies. And so the woods began to feel kind of crowded to me in a sort of sad way. In those days, climate change was still somewhat of an abstraction. It hadn't yet really broken over our heads. And so my dominant emotion was less what it is now, some combination of fear and anger, and more sadness at what we were losing, what we stood to lose. For our listeners who aren't really familiar with the end of nature, could you just give a quick synopsis of what the book is all about? Well, the book is the first piece of long-form reporting about climate change. So it wraps up what it means and what we knew about it, which was really most of what we know today. But it's also amateur philosophy or lay theology or meditation on what it means, what it feels like to live in a world where you can read our economies in every cubic meter of air, you know, uh, what it means to be in a world where you're you're never away from, from our imprint. Right. Um, so the first time I read this book was my freshman year of college, so about four years ago. And then I just reread it last week. And, you know, I'm someone that really enjoys outdoor recreation or, as you say in your book, the nature hobby. So, you know, when I put on my hiking boots or, you know, I visited Glacier National Park this summer and I wanted to go before all the glaciers melted. You know, I've been to Yosemite, all these beautiful national parks. And in these spaces, especially away from other people, I really feel that I'm disconnected from my normal life and I'm disconnected from kind of the real world in a sense. And I get a lot out of that. So I'm wondering that even if, you know, you're saying that nature has ended in the sense that humans control the amount of rain that falls on Yosemite or how fast the glaciers are melting in Glacier National Park, can people still experience nature individually? I do think so. I can. It's always with this slightly rueful sense that it's not as independent as once it was. And and part of that, of course, is that for those of us who, say, wandered Yosemite 40 years ago, it's now hard to go back and see 
how little snow is left and the snow fields and glaciers are mostly gone. And often in the yeah. summer, the pall of wildfire smoke hangs over the whole scene. But that doesn't make it, it doesn't, it doesn't make it ugly. It remains a place of extraordinary mm-hmm. beauty and meaning. And hopefully at least that beautiful high granite will be there for a very long time to come. Towards the end of your book, you have this passage where you discuss um, kind of leaving your space and like leaving the wilderness. And you say, would I love the woods enough to leave them behind? Could you just talk more about this or the individual choice to kind of leave behind a place you love to make sure it'll be there for those to come? It's one of those things that's always a possibility that you can love a place enough to kind of wreck it too, you know, and endlessly build homes around it or whatever else. I've been able to happily to continue living on the edge of wilderness now, not in the Adirondacks, but on the edge of the breadloaf wilderness on the Green Mountain National Forest, and to do it in ways that are, I think, pretty harmonious with the world around me. Right. Okay, so I, you know, have this new version of The End of Nature, which has your 2005 introduction, which was written, you know, about 15 years after the book was published. I'd love for you to tell me a bit about what had changed by then for you. Oof. I had understood originally that we were in an argument about climate change and that the job was to pile up reason and data and evidence and emotion and so on, and that eventually the powers that be would do the right thing, because why wouldn't they? And by the time 15 years had passed, it was clear to me that we had won the argument. The science was crystal clear, but we'd lost the fight, or we're losing the fight, because the fight wasn't about, it turned out, data and reason and evidence. The fight was about what fights are usually about, money and power. And the other side in this fight, the fossil fuel industry, had so much money and had so much power that despite having lost the argument, they could continue to roll out their business model and wreck the planet. And so it was about that time that I full-on switched from being mostly a writer to being more and more a volunteer organizer and activist and trying to build big movements to counter that power. And that's what I've spent my time doing since. So that's a great transition to activism. So you, as I understand it, you founded 350.org with, I believe it was seven Middlebury students, right? Yes, right? correct. You know, kids my age, 22-year-olds. Can you tell me a little bit about kind of the founding and how you came up um, with the idea for 350? Right about that time, in 2006, I wanted to do something, but I had no idea what to do. I'd never organized anything. I was a writer, writer living out in the woods. So I organized this walk across the state of Vermont to our biggest city, Burlington, which is not a very big city, about 50,000 people, but it's what we've got. And some of us started walking from Robert Frost's old summer writing cabin up in the Green Mountain. He's kind of our patron saint. And we walked up the west side of Vermont for five days and slept in farm fields at night and things. And by the time we got to Burlington, there were about a thousand of us marching, which in Vermont's actually a lot of people. And it was great. We were happy by it. But the next day we read in the paper, 
a story that said that thousand people in 2006 was probably the biggest demonstration about climate change that had yet taken place in the U.S. And when we saw that, we were like, well, no wonder we're losing. We've got this kind of superstructure of a movement. We've got Al Gore and scientists and policy people and on and on and on. The only part of the movement we're lacking is the movement part. There's no body of people there to instill any kind of fear in politicians. So we set to work to build it, and we had no idea what we were doing. We knew we wanted to work globally because they don't call it global warming for nothing. So with these seven students, we formed 350.org, drawing its name from what the scientists tell us is the most carbon we could safely have in the atmosphere, 350 parts per million. And off we went. I mean, there were seven students, there were seven continents, so each one took one. And the guy who took the Antarctic had to take the internet too. And we got down to work. Within a year or so, we'd had our first big day of global action. And partly because there was a kind of unfilled ecological niche, and partly because of beginner's luck, we were successful. We had uh, 5,100 simultaneous demonstrations in 181 countries. CNN called it the most widespread day of political action in the planet's history. And Wow. From there, we just went on to do a lot of things. We um, helped launch the fight against the Keystone Pipeline, which became the kind of signal environmental battle of the last decade. And we launched this fossil fuel divestment movement, which has grown into the biggest anti-corporate campaign in history. We're at about $40 trillion in portfolios and endowments that have withdrawn from fossil fuels. So it's been good work and helped to weaken the political power of the fossil fuel industry. Not enough yet, but we're much closer than we were a decade or 15 years ago. Going back to um, your march across Vermont, this was in 2005, 2006. So you write at the end of your 2005 introduction that you've been praying every day that people have listened to your book and have listened to your call to action, but they haven't. So do you consider that March kind of the start of your activism? Because I see this book as activism. Yeah, for me, it it felt different, you know? I I was used to writing, and writing, one hopes, produces action. That's one of the reasons one does it. But it's different to be out there making the phone calls and rounding people up and walking with them and then going to jail and so on and so forth. It's a different set of activities. I don't know. I guess I'm, I'm curious, like, do you feel different after that? Like To some degree. Now, I basically still, I think, think of myself as a writer, and it's what I spend a lot of time still doing. And it's been hard in one sense because writers are almost always introverts of one kind or another. I'm happiest sitting in front of my keyboard tapping out words, but I've had to learn to be a public person and give talks and rally people and you know, sometimes there are talks in front of 50,000 or 100,000 people, and that it's not as peaceful as it once was. And I hope that as I age, and there's many, many more people better at this who now are coming online, I can fade back into my old self. You say your old self. Do you think being an activist in this way and getting out there physically, you know, walking or calling or going to jail, like, Do you feel like that changed you as a person? I do, in certain ways. A life lived in public 
to some degree is different than a life lived in private. And in this case, it's been, you know, in a fight. And sometimes it's been difficult. I mean, it's a different world when you, you know, wake up in the morning and there's likely to be a death threat or two on your email. And at a certain point, the fossil fuel industry got annoyed enough at me that they hired a huge opposition research firm to follow me wherever I went with TV cameras. So if I went to the supermarket or to church or whatever, there was always someone two feet away with a camera in my face filming me and putting the footage up on the web and things and just designed to intimidate. And it, you know, it does. (laughs) It didn't prevent me from doing what I was doing, but I'm glad I had that decade in the Adirondacks in my 30s when I was just writing books and hiking the woods. Right, because obviously that's a very different way of living. So I want to know, I guess, more about your personal experience in becoming an activist, because it sounds like this was out of your comfort zone. Yes, very much. But the planet is way out of its comfort zone. That's what it means when it's suddenly 70 degrees Fahrenheit above normal in the Antarctic like it was last week. That's about as far outside its comfort zone as we've ever observed on planet Earth. So we need to be outside our comfort zone. That's that's very true. For our listeners, I guess I'm wondering what, what would you say to people that are, you know, more of an introvert or scared to kind of get out there and make calls right. or do stuff like that? What would you say to them? There are different tasks in a movement for different people and people find the things that they're capable of doing and good at doing. And everybody has different roles that they're good at. You know, we could not have marched a thousand people to Burlington if there hadn't been a couple of people who were extremely good at organizing and making sandwiches for a thousand people. They were just as important as whoever was up on stage giving speeches. So there's lots of different roles within a movement and people can switch on and off them at different times. It's a line of work where burnout is common. And so people need to be able to tag out and let others go. Most of us are volunteers at this work. So we have to be doing something else anyway to pay our bills. It's an odd business, but a very interesting one. I think that nonviolent social movements are really one of the most important technological developments of the 20th century. They were invented from the margins, the suffragettes, Gandhi, Dr. King, a million other people whose names we'll never know, who figured out this method for the powerless to stand up to the powerful. And we're still trying to figure out how it all works and doing it mostly by the seat of our pants and trial and error, but it can be very powerful. I'm still curious about you saying that you were really uncomfortable in the beginning. I see you as someone extremely influential, so it's hard to think that this was uncomfortable for you. I'm wondering, um, I guess, what you would say to someone that feels how you felt before you kind of got out there. Maybe it's akin to playing an instrument or something. At first, it feels awkward, and then you get a little better at it. A movement implies that there's a lot of other people around. That makes it much easier because there's people to lean on and switch off with. Right. And with Third Act, this is your new movement mobilizing what you call experienced Americans or the population over 60 to get their hands dirty and fight for social and environmental issues. Did you feel that there was kind of a lack of um, activism within that population? 
I did sort of. As you can tell from my history, most of my work's been with these college students who we founded 350.org. As the climate movement has progressed, it's largely been at the younger edge. We have wonderful efforts like the Sunrise Movement that brought us the Green New Deal. And even more beautifully, the junior high and high school students that coalesced around figures like Greta Thunberg. Greta's amazing. She's one of my favorite people in the world to work with. There's no one I like more, but she would be the first to tell you that the good news is there are 10,000 Greta Thunbergs around the planet. They have 10 million followers. I mean, it's wonderful to watch. But at a certain point, I did begin to worry that we were taking the most difficult problems on the planet and assigning them to 17-year-olds to solve in between trig homework and field hockey practice, you know, would you mind saving the world? And that seemed immoral, but it also seemed impractical. We need power to do these things, and power often resides in older people. There's 70 million Americans over the age of 60, so a population larger than France. And we all vote, so we punch way above our political weight. And Fairly or not, we ended up with all the money. We have about 70% of the country's financial assets compared to about 5% for millennials. Hopefully, we can begin to take this generation and get it back to work. And I don't think it's impossible because it's true that people tend to get more conservative as they age, probably because they have more to protect. I don't know. But it's also true that this particular generation comes with its own kind of remarkable DNA. In its first act, we were around for, to bear witness to or to participate in, one of the periods of most remarkable political, social, cultural transformation in history. The rise of the women's movement, the anti-war movement, the first Earth Day, we got a lot done. Our second act, taken as a whole, may have been a little more devoted to consumerism than to citizenship. One can understand where the jibes about okay boomer and things come from. But that's water under the bridge. And now we emerge in our third act with lots of skills, lots of resources, lots of time often, and often children and grandchildren, such that we have a new stake in the future. And we don't want to be maybe the first generation that leaves the world a lot worse place than it found it. This reminds me a lot of, in End of Nature, you talk a lot about time Mm -hmm. and a lot about how hard it is to think on kind of a geologic sense or even think on a generational sense. I feel like a lot of people say, you know, you know, we need to protect the earth for generations to come. But, you know, like I, I obviously I don't have kids. Like I don't, I can't even imagine having grandchildren right now. But your generation has that. It has that experience. It knows what it's like to be leaving the planet to younger people. And that's that's why you think, you know, it almost has more importance to you in a way. So if you're 20 right now, you have a huge vested interest in slowing climate change because it's on your head that it's going to break. I'm going to be dead before this is at its absolute worst. But you're going to be in the theoretical prime of your life. And the problem is going to be that whatever great skill you've acquired, career you've prepared for, if things go as they 
could easily go if we don't get our act together soon. Your job in your 40s and 50s is going to be emergency response because that's going to be everybody's job. (laughs) That's what we're going to do. And so young people have a tremendous stake in change. And that's one of the reasons why they've been at the forefront of this. But we're trying to remind older people that they have a stake in it too. Not as much physical stake, although climate change is now happening and older people and frailer people are at great risk, greater risk in some ways than young and hardy ones, but more a kind of um, moral uh, risk, a risk that the um, good life that will be the undoing of those who come after us. Everything you're saying now is one of the reasons why I've chosen to study this and chosen to go down a career path focused on activism and environmentalism and renewable energy. I'm curious, what is your response to people who say that nothing really matters if everyone isn't focused on this in a way? One of the things that's good about the vast size of climate change, which is the biggest thing humans have ever done by far, is that it means you can attack it from many, many vantage points. And so no matter what profession people go into, there's lots of room for them to work on it. Scientists and engineers, accountants and business people, psychologists and theologians, on and on and on. Everyone needs to also reconsider themselves as citizens. Most of the work that gets done on these things is done by unpaid people working nights and weekends. (laughs) That's what citizenship entails. (laughs) We've kind of gotten out of the habit of citizenship for a while in this country. There was an ideological predisposition against it. We need to become better citizens again. That's what movements are. I mean, that, you know, someone in my position, that's really, I guess, powerful to hear um, and inspiring, right? Because I feel like a lot of the talk about all of these topics is so depressing and so sad. So it's, I guess, really hopeful to see a fresh perspective. There's no way to avoid the depressing nature of some of this. It's a very fraught and dangerous situation that we're in. That means that it's both a burden and an honor to be the people who get to try and do something about it. There's no greater challenge that humans have ever faced, and we should rise to it. You know, we look at the brave people in Ukraine right now, standing up to Vladimir Putin, And we wonder, would we be as brave in the same circumstance? Could we do these things? We've got a huge fight of our own on our hands that we can honorably come to. And in fact, of course, these two fights are deeply connected. I've been doing a lot of work with the last few weeks with Ukrainian colleagues um, Mm -hmm. who have worked on climate stuff forever and who are pointing out the obvious fact that Fossil fuel underlies both Vladimir Putin's army and the climate crisis that we're in, and that the only way really to see them both off is to stop burning coal and gas and oil. So we'll continue that fight. I want to go back a little bit, if that's okay, kind of to our conversation about the end of nature. I'm curious about how you see your ideas from end of nature in practice today and how your idea that you've put forth that nature has, in fact, ended and that we're the ones that have killed it play out right now? Well, it requires one to be um, grown up enough. We're not talking about defending a 
perfect and pristine world, and we're not going to get one back. Our choices are between bad and much, much worse. We've raised the temperature of the planet one degree Celsius. There's no givebacks on that. And that's caused half the sea ice in the summer Arctic to melt. The pH of the ocean is different radically than when I wrote that book. Our seasons work differently. We see wildfires of scales we've never seen before. The jet stream and the Gulf Stream have begun to break down. Those are very bad. But there's a big difference between one degree Celsius and three degrees Celsius, which is where we're headed if we don't change. If the temperature goes up three degrees Celsius, we're not going to have civilizations like the ones that we're used to having. And the scale of misery for human beings, especially the most vulnerable and the people who've done the least to cause this, and the scale of misery for every other living thing on this earth, and the scale of misery for everyone who comes after us and everything that comes after us, not just off the charts, they'll be off the wall, the chart is tacked too. The choices we make over the next decade or so will reverberate for tens of thousands of years. So time to grow up and face that responsibility. It would be nicer if what we were fighting for was a total victory, but that's no longer possible. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's better, even worse. <laughs> Taking these ideas from the end of nature and implementing them today, I see it almost as a sort of consciousness and just a way to carry yourself. At least that's what I got out of it. That seems right to me. There's an unavoidable sadness that goes with understanding where we are, but that's part of the modern human condition. Yeah. Also, in a way an optimistic consciousness as well. Absolutely. And as I said before, an honor and a privilege as well as a burden. Not many people get to look around and say they're doing the most important thing they could possibly be doing in the world at that moment. But anyone who's taking on in some effective way climate change can make that claim. Yeah. I think um, that the honor and um, burden aspect is really important. And I think that rings really true today. That's all the questions I have for you, Bill. Thank you so much. Those are super good questions, and I've enjoyed it very much, very much. Thank you for your good work on all of this and your good thinking, and thank you for careful and attentive reading. That's what author likes. So I'm (laughs) grateful on all accounts, and I will very much look forward to meeting you someday. Yeah, me as well. So, Sophie, I want to ask, you know, now that you've recorded this conversation with Bill McKibben, what your take-homes are. But can I start by asking, like, what did it feel like to talk to him? I mean, this might sound lame to say, but I was pretty starstruck. Um, It was, I guess, really, just really cool to put a face to the name. Yeah. Um, Even this is audio, but yeah, I know you. Yes. (laughs) Even that it is audio. Put a voice to the name and kind of hear, you know, because I really recently have been seeing him on a page uh, rereading that of nature. So it was really amazing to hear that voice kind of jump out. Yeah. Um, Well, what are your take-homes from the conversation? I mean, what did you get out of it? I left the conversation feeling very inspired, which I was not expecting to. Usually (laughs) um, when you have conversations about the climate crisis, it's really depressing and sad, and it kind of makes you um, nervous about the future. But I think Bill McKibben, I don't know, he just had a more optimistic look than I was expecting. Um, And then I also 
I guess when we were talking about my generation's role in fighting the climate crisis, he described it as both an honor and a burden, um, which I think was just like a really productive way of describing like how you move forward with this. And he was saying that it's good to frame it as like we're lucky to be able to have such a big impact right now, which I think is really refreshing in a world where very often these conversations can become very, very sad very, very quickly. So yeah. I really enjoyed how it ended on a positive note. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, there's a, I mean, I, I don't know. I know I live with that tension, that sense of dread yeah. and fear, but like the idea that this is an incredible moment to be alive on planet earth and, and that's, yeah. and, and that there's possibility. Um, You know, what really leapt out to me was this idea with the third act that I know is his latest endeavor, like trying to tap into the energy of the 1960s. I mean, that's such a, a decade of transformation in American history, the anti-war movement, the civil rights movement, you know, the feminist movement, um, that he is trying to sort of, I don't know, harness that energy and mobilize the people who are now a lot older, who are part of that moment. I, I, I don't know if he's going to be successful or not, but I certainly like that sentiment. I like that idea a lot. Yeah, I also really, I hadn't thought about it that way. Um, and I think that his idea of kind of taking the hope and energy that the older generation had during this moment of huge social change. And um, I think they can both give my generation a lot of really good advice and then also use their power um, and wealth to yeah. really make a difference. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well said. Well, um, congratulations on a talking to Bill McKibben. That was really exciting to have him on the show. And, uh, and thanks for helping out with this episode. Thanks. Yeah, it was a really amazing opportunity. Thank you so much again to Sophie Borston and Bill McKibben for that conversation. Bill McKibben's latest endeavor is called Third Act, and you can find out more at thirdact.org. Thanks so much to Brandon Burke for producing this episode. And again, you can now support the show on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash Happy Earth Day, everyone. Thank you so much again, and see you next time.